you're listening to Cinepunked. This episode, Men, Maggots and Mutiny. Sergei Eisenstein's 1925 film Battleship Potemkin remains a highly regarded work of cinema, frequently cited amongst the most important and best films ever made. A film that expanded Eisenstein's own theories of montage as a propaganda tool. Its power was such that Goebbels looked towards Eisenstein cinema as inspiration for the propaganda produced for the Nazi party in Hitler's Germany, and the British censors banned it outright until 1954. A century on, and its tale of revolution on board a Russian battleship and uprising against the officer class holds uncanny parallels to modern events in Ukraine. Potemkin's fabled sequence of a massacre on the steps at Odessa are much homaged, cementing the film in the popular conscience. Even if you've never seen Potemkin, I guarantee you've seen its legacy. The time has come for us to speak out. Your captain of the good ship Cinepunked, as ever, is me, Robert J.E. Simpson. And my comrades for this evening's Soviet exploration are my real-life brother-in-arms and musician, Ben Blademan Simpson. Hello. And our very own ship's priest, Mr. Films and Faith, Neil Sedgwick. Good evening. I'm disappointed you don't have that mighty cross with you to whack us down with. (laughs) We'll get to him. I completely forgot about that guy. How can you forget about that guy? He's one of the oh things. So, look, uh, we've been delving a little bit more into the earlier days of cinema and some of our recent podcasts, having spent a lot of our time in more modern films. And I'm aware that silent cinema is not for everyone. And Soviet cinema is definitely not for everyone. So much is it not for everyone that... Our compatriot, Dr. Rachel Kelly, refused to do this show. <laughs> Just says, I'm not watching that film. We did ask her. Uh, she she said that she's not going to watch it. And if she questions this, I will stick up the clip on YouTube where she refuses to watch this film at length. <sighs> so, bearing in Rachel can't stand it. She I mean, did say, all right, I'll do it then. Yeah, providing she didn't have to watch it again. Oh. And she hasn't seen this film in, in like over 20 years. Just do what I did. <laughs> so, Rachel can't stand this. Um, I I was made to watch this as a first year undergraduate film study student. Um, and my memories of it are, are, like, I don't think I got it when I watched it. Um, so I've rewatched it for this podcast, uh, sat last night reviewing it, and I have to say, I feel a little bit more affection for it now than I did then. Um, but I made you two watch it. Neither of you are familiar with Sergei Eisenstein or Soviet cinema, as far as I'm aware. Um, ben, how did you get through the experience? Tell our listeners so that they realize that there's more than one way to appreciate a film. I watched this on YouTube at 1.5 times speed. <laughs> Neil's kicking himself now for having not thought of this technique to get through the film quicker. (laughs) The only thing I did was anytime there was text on the screen, I paused it so it would give me enough time to read. That's all I did. There's not a lot of text in this film. There's not a lot of text, but um, it's good to have the option to be able to pause it, read the text, and then carry on because... The length of shots is so slow. It's like, get your point, just come on, move on the next bit. Yes, let's go. So at 1.5 times the speed, the music's pretty cool. And uh, the the film flows a lot better. Okay. In my opinion. So you should definitely watch it at 1.5 times speed. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure. So I think we ended up watching different versions um, <laughs> of the film, which we'll go talk about in a second. Uh, ben watched the one I suggested to him, which I found on YouTube, um, which is uh, the, 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 there are various versions of this out there. I'm not sure which score it is that we listened to. I don't know if it's the original score that was redone or if this is a modern scoring of it. Um, so we can't really talk about the specific score. It's the job about silent movies is everyone can come along and put a new one on it and it's not always clear who's done what. It does Um, sound like... Of of its era? Of the period. 
um, the one I don't, yeah when we watched. Um, so I would imagine it is maybe the original score, but it's just been re it recorded. Maybe could I don't know. be certainly the version that we watched was a restoration of the original premiere cut. Yeah, because it was re-edited in the years subsequently. Um, which we'll we'll kind of talk a little bit about hopefully in a bit as well. Um, Neil, yeah, <laughs> God, it's like watching the room all over again. The responses we're getting tonight. <laughs> I I wish I'd have watched this at two point five speed because not only would it have sped it up, but it would have also turned the score into something akin to a Benny Hill chase sequence. Yeah, it would have, yeah. And we could have got a bit more joy out of this. Um, I am fascinated that you were given this as a first year Mm -hmm. watch at uni, right? Because the only reason I would give this to somebody as a first year is to see if they were really serious about sticking with this course. Because if I'd have been in that room, I'd have probably gone, can I... Can I can I switch course now? Because I, I I need out of here. I need out of here. This well part of the, part of the problem that I may have encountered is that I also watched it on YouTube. Uh-huh. Yes, you put a link in the chat. Did I click that link? No, I just searched on YouTube, and I think what I might have watched is a slightly grainier, um, less perfect sound. Um, which when I watched it on YouTube on my TV, yeah, just went through me like mm. nails down on a chalkboard. Um, in terms of sound, anyway, um, and some of the some of the visuals weren't weren't as clear as mm. they could be. And to be honest, those type of things, particularly when you're dealing with a sound film and you're talking about the score, those having, matter. Having a good quality, it does matter. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, it does. It it changes your experience, be it watching at home or watching in a cinema, you need the best possible uh, projection and you need the best possible sound mm-hmm. to get the full experience. So I, I'm fully aware that I have um, <laughs> I have made an error there by not by not going with the suggested link in our in our WhatsApp group. Um, but in saying that, this is still miserable. Yeah. Um, this is still okay. miserable, and this and let's be clear: this is a film that consistently appears on greatest films ever made lists and and things of that ilk. Um, mm. Whereas your boy here jumped on the letterbox and gave it two and a half stars. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, first of all, in addressing the issue about the picture quality and the representation of these things, so like I, the era that we grew up in. When you did see silent movies popping up on TV or clipped on films or documentaries, it tended to to be um, clips that were full of grain, full of dirt, looked like they'd been dragged through 14 hedges backwards and then stuck on a projector. Um, often, you know, the, the era of VHS, it looked like they'd been duped down half a dozen times, so everything was very blurry. Um, you couldn't really see a lot of detail. And the scores were often twinkly, twinkly piano music, particularly if you're watching any silent comedies. It's like, yeah, okay, we get it. And I don't think that has ever been the best way to watch a silent movie. Yeah. Um, the nice thing is over the last decade or two, there have been a lot of efforts by film archives to preserve and restore these hundred-year-old films. I mean, this this film is coming close to its century. I mean, it's it's a really really old film. Um, so it you know it is obviously the elements of it have have been through a lot anyway. But there are better versions out there. And whenever you're kind of looking at an old film, it is worth having a fish around. There's a lot of them are put on social or on the likes of YouTube. And archive.org as out of copyright public domain. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Some of them, it's a case of certain edits and certain scores are public domain. Some of them aren't, so it is a bit of a, a hit and miss. But usually you'll find that some enterprising soul has gone and ripped a really nice copy from a Blu-ray and put up somewhere. It's just a case of trying to find it. Um, so Neil has learnt how our process works for making sure we watch the right things in future. Always. If you're... Always trust, always trust the chat link. 
Always trust the chat link. That's what I'm taking away from this. If, if you happen to be out there and you're listening to this and you're trying to like look for these films as well and it's looking dodgy as... Now, there, there are still occasions where you'll find a film that isn't available in a particularly good copy. We did a podcast on Maya Darren a few weeks ago. Maya Darren stuff has not really been ripped and put up on uh, on sort of likes of YouTube in good quality at the moment. There's still a need to do a lot of work on, on her archive. So that's a harder thing to do. To, to find you're still looking at substandard representations, but they're still worth going out and exploring. Um, so lessons have been learned today. Um, yeah, I might, in the sleeve notes for this one, I might stick a link through and it'll be there for as long as the episode remains until someone takes a, puts a copyright claim or the user cancels their account. That's what usually happens. Um, the other thing I want to, <laughs> I suppose I should touch on is you, you've, you've raised the point that you find it interesting that this is what I was given as a film student. Now, I remember my film professor, Sam Rody, once suggesting, because I used to sit on, on sort of um, like a staff meeting thing as a student representative. And I remember him admitting that he put stuff on there to challenge the students so that people who really were there for an easy time would leave the course. You know, if you thought all you're going to do is watch films for three years. <laughs> he, he did do it quite deliberately. It's like, let's, let's challenge them. And if they, they're not up for the challenge, they shouldn't be doing the course. It's not mm. just all about like, current stuff um but also he was of a generation that were brought up on certain kinds of films so soviet cinema is often looked at a real backbone in terms of of what film does and like we don't realize that we're watching stuff that's been influenced by these films when you talk about early film directors people might talk about meliers in terms of like fantasy and science fiction they might talk about the likes of dw griffith it's another name that if I mention to Rachel, you will hear her say expletives. <laughs> she doesn't want to watch D.W. Griffith films either, with good reason. Mm. Um, not least, he was a racist. Um, and his films are very strongly racist. But nonetheless, he has a certain position within cinema history that, that means you sort of can't avoid him if you look at all this stuff. Um, the Russians are doing stuff that's very, very different. And they're introducing more... I think they introduce more complex areas of editing... And I'm going to top this show with explaining to you what it is that we get out of this and why it is that, that these films are important. And then we can actually talk about the content because, like, if you're coming to this, if you're somebody who, like, like Ben and Neil don't have a formal cinema background, no film training in this stuff. No. I have a couple of degrees, but, like, you know, I have my tastes as well. And I find Sergi Eisenstein stuff quite difficult. When I watched it first time around... Or most of them, I really loved his film October, which was about the 1917 revolution in Russia. Um, and Strike's quite good too. But Potemkin left me a bit cold. And Ivan the Terrible, if you ever get a chance to watch Ivan the Terrible, I would say skip it. Um, it's another one that's lauded. Uh, Eisenstein, like Cocteau, Neil, uh, was a film theorist. So he wrote quite a bit about film theory. He's one of the earliest film theorists as well. And his big emphasis was on montage. And Ben has already alluded to this. Ben has mentioned... Uh, like okay we get it the shots are drawn out we see the same thing over and over again um in a nutshell so uh, montage do you understand what montage is ben well um well yes mm -hmm. because you know even rocky had a montage um <laughs> he did <laughs> are we linking rocky to sergey eisenstein brilliant <laughs> Um, well, I, I got that from Team America, you know, um, <laughs> that, that, that song. <clears throat> okay. So, um, so you're familiar with the idea of a montage, but yes. do you, so do you understand what it, what it does or what it's meant to do? I think it's supposed to show a progression over a, a period of time, like, uh, this is our starting point, and then we go through these little actions to get mm. to our finishing point. Okay. Um, that is certainly how I think a lot of thinking is about montage. It, it's sort of those, those bringing together um, shots that are often quite disparate in terms of space and time yeah. in order to, to kind of create something, and often it's used to create a journey in, in films like Rocky. Absolutely. Um, but Sergei Eisenstein's ideas about montage were about creating meaning out of a montage. So basically the idea was that you could take lots and lots of little shots and put them together. And as a whole, 
their meaning was stronger than any individual element. Right. So his whole idea is like, uh, let me try and think how to explain this to you. You know, and, and, and to our listeners as well who maybe aren't familiar with these sort of ideas or these concepts, uh, and I'm not not trying to talk down to anyone, but it's like the thing that we, we've always tried to do is to try and make sure that people follow. Um, it's like if you uh, think of a Hitchcock. Um, there's a Hitchcock sequence where there's a train goes into a tunnel, right? And immediately before that, we see a couple on sort of in an entanglement. They're sort of getting quite cozy. And then we see the train, and we see the train going into the tunnel, right? So if you take that as three shots, I can't remember how many it is in the actual film, but what you're doing there is you're showing three elements. You're showing a journey on a train. You're showing a tunnel, which is obviously a destination, and you're showing them as a couple. But there's also a, and then we're going to be really crass here for a second, there's a phallic representation within that too. That is showing a love scene, but also suggesting very strongly the act of sex in a period where you couldn't show sex in film because the train becomes a symbol. It's a phallic symbol. Many worker man fans out there know that know that phrase, phallic symbol, uh, and and the tunnel. Well, need I explain what that is? So, it, it, but you've suddenly got this meaning that's created. You wouldn't see that if you didn't have the three elements. If you just had the train and the tunnel, you maybe wouldn't see it in the same way that you do whenever you've got the train, the tunnel, and then the couple kind of coming together. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So you're painting a picture. You're, but also implying something else through the shots yes so uh, i mean we've talked quite a bit about orson wells and one of the things that orson wells often did was he would have um quite complex depth of field within his within his shots and he'd have lots of layers going on with lots and lots of stuff in in the sequence itself and he'll often hold quite a broad take and all the details are in there rather than sort of picking out individual things Mm -hmm. So your meaning is you read your meaning in a slightly different way, but whenever you're showing different elements within your shots, you're starting to pick out a meaning from it. So Eisenstein is literally trying to create meaning by doing this stuff, and the Odessa step sequence is one we'll have to discuss in terms of this because that's the one everyone focuses on. But all the time he's creating meaning by bringing all these different elements together. Well, you could say that, and even uh, the the bit. Um, where uh, the, the boats, and he's like, mm-hmm. you know, full steam ahead. You know, even that bit, the way it's pieced together. Every frame of this film is doing it. Yeah, the entire film, any sequence at all, you can take it. And actually, the film as a whole is composed of all those sequences, and every single bit of it is driven towards an agenda, a meaning, an interpretation. You know what I find weird about this thing is the fact that it's shot in, like, chapters. Okay. Um, You're not used to that from from films at all? Yes, but not so, like, like blatant. Like, chapter one, here's your black screen, you know. Um... You know, even thinking back to uh, whenever we watched that the the kid, uh-huh. Charlie Chapman thing. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, it had chapters, but the there was no blatant like scene one. You know, act one, end of scene one. You know, act two. You know, that kind I of guess, thing. But I mean, I, I guess, guess it's a little, there was. I suppose it is a literary convention. Uh, I mean, in theatre, you would often have act one scene. You know, you break it down to your three acts. Yeah. Um, obviously, we're used to novels where it's it's literally breaks down to the chapters. Um, I'm, before we did this record, I mentioned Licorice Pizza, which is one of the the, the current films that's just been nominated for Best Picture, Paul Thomas Anderson film. It has chapters. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's lots of films that that still have chapters. Chapters. Kenneth, Kevin Smith is fond of doing it. Um, so that in itself, I guess if you're not, if if you haven't encountered it in the films that you're watching, it might seem a bit unusual. I don't think it's that. Well, I'm just, I just I've just realised I was going to suggest a lot of films that we've done recently, but you weren't on those pods because we when we did um, Cabinet Doctor Caligari. Caligari has chapters as well, and it's also of that silent era. Yeah, I don't know. Neil, any thoughts? Just generally, I mean, it's you don't have to be specific about this. You don't have to respond to this. Just, just generally thoughts on the film. Do you know? Do you know one of the problems that I have? 
and I don't know where it comes from. I don't know where it comes from. But I really do not like war movies mm-hmm. as a as a rule. And it doesn't matter modern um or or historical cinema. I really struggle with war films and I think it comes down to whenever you have things based on events like these that there is a needless loss of life that I just find mm. really difficult to to square away with entertainment. Like even you think of something like Saving Private Ryan and everybody goes, oh, that bit with the, you know, the things, the door comes down the boat and it's just, and all the shots coming in. And I'm just watching it going, this is, that might as well be a horror movie to me. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, like that that's not that's not entertaining. Like it's a marvel of of filmmaking, yes. Mm-hmm. But the the story behind it just involves a lot of loss that didn't need to happen. <laughs> and that really I think does something emotionally in me that just upsets me. So when we get to the um the sequence on the Odessa steps, I found it a very tough watch. Not least because within that there are women, children yeah. being trampled um, in an attempt to escape. Um, and yeah, I just, I, yeah, I think I think I was always going to be up against it with this film because of my issues with, with war, war films. That's, that's fair enough. Um, so for anyone who's not ever watched this film, um, it is based on real life events that happened in 1905 and then Soviet Union and the, the greater Russian Empire, I guess, um, where the crew of the battleship Potemkin um, got so fed up with the quality of their rations, literally maggot ridden meat, that they mutinied, basically. They rebelled against the officer class. Mm. And there was then a threat to shoot the crew members that had complained. And the captain of the ship did indeed lay down a tarpaulin uh, to protect the ship from the blood of the men they were about to shoot. And there was a revolution. And of the, I think it was 15 officers, eight of them were killed. Um, and there were then other ships brought in. The, the Basically the Navy came in. And uh, they were given instructions, and Battleship Katemkin raised its red flag, red flag, and they were able to sail about, and nobody caused them any problems. And they did, in turn, take a shot with six-inch shells um, at, uh, I believe, a theatre and the governor's house, and they missed. Actually, in the film, they they hit their target seemingly, but they they didn't quite hit it in um, in real life. But there was a revolution. It was part of a whole series of events that happened in 1905. And this film was produced as a commemoration of this revolution. The revolution was against the working, the, the upper classes, the ruling class, the czars and all the rest of it. And as a consequence, this army had some modifications to the way things ran in, in, in Russia at the time. Um, but not sufficient changes because in 1917 there was another revolution and it was a much more substantial one that created an actual change in the way that, that Russia was was ruled. Um, but crucially, the actions of this event, of, of this film, take place in modern-day Ukraine. Um, and Odessa is a port town in Ukraine, which, as we happen to be recording this at the very end of March in 2022, um, has recently been under fire a lot. Uh, by Russia uh, as part of their ongoing war in Ukraine. And ever since that has happened, I couldn't get this film out of my head and the the sequence of the Odessa steps in particular because it just seemed like a metaphor in some ways, this revolution against Russia itself and this, this sort of oppressive Russia kind of coming in and the people of Ukraine once again trying to fight for their individuality and themselves. And it strikes me that 100 years on, we're kind of repeating ourselves to the point where as we started our record tonight uh, we were talking about a story that's been in the news where on the opening on the, during the opening overs of the uh, the ukraine war uh russia did send a battleship in to attack odessa they 
advised them that they were coming in and they suggested they surrender and uh, one of the brave Ukrainian soldiers told them to go fuck off yeah and I feel that is Potemkin all over again <laughs> Just... yeah <laughs> I, I mean you can see why I suggested that we cover this film not least because it's a, supposedly a really important piece of cinema history but it just feels like right now it's it's it is very kind of relevant to what's going on in the current state um, that we find ourselves in. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of, there's a big move right now. Um, it's a weird time that we're recording this because there is a move to sort of almost not discuss or celebrate anything that, that's associated with Russia at all. And Sergei Eisenstein, Sergei was a was a sort of from he was from modern day Latvia. He's buried in Moscow. He's a Russian Soviet filmmaker, um, and I, I you know personally, I guess I guess in terms of cinepunk, I mean this could be seen as a, a difficult film right now. But I kind of think it's exactly the sort of stuff that we should be looking at. Now, Neil, you went to your Bible, um, your your cinema Bible. So please share with us what the Lord Cousins has to say about. Battleship Potemkin and why you should watch it. Well, just in terms of the the historical significance of it and what it does, um, two two things were referenced in terms of filmmaking and how those specific shots then carried on. Um, the first of which, when talking about the Odessa steps, is the dolly shot, mm-hmm. um, which. Do you want to explain what a dolly shot is? Yeah, well, a dolly shot, uh, we are just um, choosing a wheeled cart, usually on rail tracks. It's like a tracking shot, basically, essentially where you would follow, um, be it a vehicle or somebody on foot, the camera will move alongside them, with them. Um, And so that, it's kind of seen as one of the first instances of the dolly shot in cinema, mm-hmm. um, which is very interesting because that is something that is just taken now as matter of fact. Like it's not, it's not anything massively insightful to go, oh look, there's a dolly shot when you're watching anything now. You know, yeah, it's taken for granted that nine times out of ten you will see one in whatever you're watching. Yeah, um, but that that. The, the point being that this was kind of the significant um, start point for that type of thing. Yeah, it's a, um, it's, I mean, it's, it's a physical moving of the camera along with whatever action is, rather than just a series of static shots. Yeah. It is changing the, the sort of the relationship between the camera and what it's looking at. So in the case of this film, when you get to the Odessa steps, you follow people down the steps, for instance. Mm. Um, you don't stay at the top of the staircase and watch everybody run down. You go as if, and it, what what it does in that instance is, it brings you into the chaos. Because if you if you had a shot at the top of the steps, as if you you would then be able to detach yourself from what is unfolding on the steps as people are coming down, being trampled, all that stuff. But when you're using a dolly shot, what you're doing there is, you are in on the staircase with the people in the middle of the chaos and it gives the sense of being part of it mm-hmm. rather than being away from it. So that, that was one of the things. And the second thing um, which came up was the close-ups, the use of, oh my goodness, I don't know how many close-ups we have in this film. We get deep, we get deep into the faces. If you Google, if you Google image, um, Battleship Potemkin. The majority of it will be those close-up shots. Um, yeah. There's a famous one of a woman with broken glasses screaming on the steps. Um, is it you know? But even at the very start of the film, everything is in close-up to whoever is speaking. Yeah, um, you're right in the face of the soldier giving off sailor giving off about the. Uh, the rotting meat there being fed, you know, you're right in there. And again, it's one of those things that again, now is just a matter of fact thing when you get a close up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but the, the close-ups on the actual meat as well mm -hmm. with the, the maggots crawling through it you know yeah i mean very grim lots of protein mm. very grim um but yeah the close-up and i i don't know about you but what do you think about the use of close-ups in this um because they do they do bring you in and show you very clearly the the emotion mm -hmm. in each stage which again in a silent film is something that you need mm. because you don't have the voice to do the work for you so you need a close-up to show you how something is being expressed it's not it's not about the the uh, audio of it or the oral presentation of it at that point mm -hmm. It is to be read in the face and the action of whoever is on screen. Um, the downside of it being that in this film, at least, there's just an awful lot of it. It, it feels like a very repeated thing. See, to me, obviously, I don't know much about the history of this film or mm. the filmmaking techniques at the time. To me, it seems like somebody learned a brand new technique and went ham with it. Like, let's use this. This shot looks amazing. Let's use it 500 times in this you movie. So you're not a fan of its use at all? I, I think just because of the repetitiveness mm -hmm. of it, it, it kind of... I don't know, maybe that's because of what I'm used to now in films is like, you know, it's almost like, well, it's like Groundhog Day whenever you're watching this. It's the same, <laughs> same footage used over and over and over. And you're like, right, okay, I get the point. But now, obviously, with the way things are shot, I think even if... um. I saw like, like, uh, our the wee thing that we did, right? Yes, it could be considered a, a silent film. Yes, a very short one. Yes, but a silent film nonetheless. Yes, yes, we did a few shots of you know. I don't want to give anything away, just in case it comes to light. At at some point, um, it will. It will. Um. But you know what I mean? We we didn't do 500 million no. takes of the same shot to put a point across. We just did one or two on that, got the point across. And um, So, I, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, modern cinema doesn't tend to go for the close-up. And I, I, I mean, a lot of cinema never did. It's used particularly the extreme close-up where we're kind of talking like right into the face where you're cutting off maybe top of the head, bottom of the chin kind of stuff, really into the facial features. Yeah. You tend to use that for to for effect and to make a point. You know, the traditional way of doing cinema is sort of this, this sort of wide shot where you see the whole scene. Then you kind of go for your mediums slightly closer up and then you kind of go for your, your sort of medium close-ups. It's a bit like anyone who's watching this, if we post this up as a video, can kind of see our, our kind of heads and maybe our upper torsos. And that's the shot reverse shot conversation. Mm -hmm. um, cinema, when it kind of starts, it's very theatrical because it's basically filming stuff that happens on a stage. Um, the cameras are limited. And then things evolve and they start moving closer. They start getting different kinds of shots. And then we start seeing movement, which is Neil says, you know, things like the dolly shot gets introduced, which is revolutionary. We don't realize it, but it's revolutionary what they're doing at the time. And the camera is starting to, to do something different. Spaces are starting to be navigated differently on screen. Um, I think I think what Neil suggests is probably quite right. It allows us to get us right in. If you watch, I don't know if any of you've ever seen the, 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 the silent Joan of Arc, but it's a lot of it is extreme close-ups. It is allowing us to see her performance in great detail and her anguish it is giving us an emotional connection to the character that's being played and i think that's what it's about it's about trying to connect i mean we're in a generation now that's that's stuck with people on social media watching people live streaming 24 hours a day a lot of that is about looking at people's faces whenever you don't have those faces there whenever people are too far away from the camera we get annoyed and we want to turn off that that can desire to connect is still there 
And in terms of this, if you look at this as a piece of propaganda, which it is, mm -hmm. it was designed as a piece of propaganda. Um, it is designed to emotionally connect with people. The way that the scenes are shot and cut and the way that we see people's emotions are meant to make us feel a certain way. Mm. The fact that, that you know, the, the very little sparse dialogue that is there around that meat, you know, it's like, you know, you wouldn't even give a dog this, they say. And then we see them, we see closer, we see shots of the meat, we see the maggots, we see their reactions. Then we're out on deck and we see these, these officers twirling their mustaches in great detail, which I love. I'm, I'm so sad that I don't have my twirly mustache right now. Um, but we watch them do that. And then we hear, again, a line of dialogue, you know, that shoot them like dogs. We're kind of meant to feel a certain way and we see their reactions. Um, so it is quite a powerful tool. And I think what it, maybe what it reminds us is, is, is the power of the face. It is how much we express through our eyes and our facial expressions without the words. Mm. Yeah, it, do you know it's funny though there there is a point just about, about the chapters thing mm -hmm. i think it works at certain points in the film better than it does throughout so initially when you get into the initial act of mutiny yes it works when you're on the steps yes it works mm. but there's a bit there's a bit kind of in the in the middle kind of third fourth chapter where i'm like I just don't really care about any of this. I don't feel like any connection to any one character mm. in this. There's not really anything to draw me to anybody. Initially, you have that draw to these people are being unfairly treated. Yeah, they should. Mutiny. Mm -hmm. At the end, what a tragedy, what a horrible event this is. And all the emotion that comes with that. But in, in between those kind of bookends for me, I just couldn't find anybody to kind of latch on to or because I, I felt the mutiny was done, right? So I kind mm. of felt like, like, like that's over. I got a bit lost in this. At, you know, in that midpoint, you yeah. know, when, whenever they're docked and all the people are bringing the, the food to them and then... They're all like uh, yeah. cheering. And then all of a sudden, there's an army shooting down innocent people. To, to be fair, I mean, I get a little bit, I think this is the bit where I get slightly um, lost myself. It feels like maybe there's, there's something else that should have been there. I think the message is about uniting against, it's, it, the, the overall message is about how strong they are as a people whenever they unite against the upper classes, basically. And about how they have the real power. That's what the film is ultimately trying to tell us. Yeah. And it's not just me trying to project a meaning onto it. It's like, that is literally what the film is trying to tell us. It's a very, you know, it's a straight communist um, piece of propaganda. Oh, damn, Cinepunk's doing communism. Shit. Uh, it's us getting cancelled in America. Um, so, I mean, th that is definitely what what is there. And you see how it goes from like, okay, so initially those the soldier the, the sailors are revolting then they call on other sailors who are there to shoot them and they all unite and then they overthrow the powers that be then they bring the body to land of the the revolutionary and this is all tied in with lenin stalin and everything else um and then the people of odessa unite around that and i mean i have to say i'm super impressed with the number of extras they managed to get this isn't like whenever we were doing game of thrones where everyone is digitally modeled multiplied there it's like there are thousands, thousands. of people yeah <laughs> like, like yeah that was impressive um like, like logistically and all going everywhere on the frame just like yeah right right uh, we'll get like 600 people walking across that way we'll get 900 people walking across this way and um yeah it'll be amazing and it is it's and you're impressive. like yeah and and you can sort of see how you might if you're watching this at the time the, the hard thing is we've got a hundred years of change since then but you can kind of feel in that moment like wow that's amazing mm. and you kind of get that message of strength and then you have it goes to this point where Obviously, this random group of soldiers comes in and they hem the people in and they start shooting at them. 
Yeah, and then she, and then the boat fires at a randomly. Like, I think somebody telling the story could have maybe come up with some kind of story. Uh huh. Um, I know this is like based on truth, but well, so so the bit that's not true is the bit on the Odessa steps. The most famous bit of the film is 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 a fiction, right? It never happened. It didn't happen, but it's the most powerful sequence of the whole film undeniably but it's really disjointed from the whole thing like yeah. it's like it t- to me it was like what where did this come from so like that even the even the bit after whenever they're like oh let's fire at this theater and then let's yeah have a nap and oh no there's people <laughs> coming um full steam ahead let's get ready to fire We'll put up yeah. a wee, a wee red flag. You know what I find weird is like that's the only bit of color in the whole film. Yes. Um, How did they do that? D- d- the version you watched, Neil, was the flag red. I don't, I don't believe you it was. Know. No. So the the red the flag w- was hand done by Eisenstein himself for the premiere. Was that painted? On the premiere on? print. It was literally painted the frame because apparently they shot it with a red flag, but the red flag looked black on the prints, and he had to literally hand paint that on or on the original print that was used in 1925. So the general release prints probably didn't have it on it, or a lot of the prints that would have been in circulation wouldn't have had that moment of color. But that really that, that really stood out. But it's meant to because again, if you think about this as a piece of propaganda, yeah. you suddenly got this. Black and white film, star, star, black and white. And this is the era of black and white cinema. Yeah. You suddenly have this bright red flag that they're all hanging around. Now, this is obviously lost on Neil because he hasn't seen it with the red flag that's there. But if you think, Neil, about that moment in The Testament d'Orfei, mm. where you suddenly have that bit of color and yes. how it pops out. Yeah. It's the same sort of impact. I hope people are actually listening and watching our films as we go along because they'll get so much more out of this. They'll suddenly see a connection. Um but it suddenly stands out and your attention is drawn to it and you again think about the power of that red flag. It's the flag of of basically the, the current Soviet state of things. Yeah. You know, so it's it's about this red flag of communism. It's this red flag that brings the people together, that does away with the ruling classes. That's what that red flag's about. Get the red flag flying high. Good morning, America. <laughs> 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 getting us cancelled <laughs> so I mean that that's the reason that that is there right. that, that's just, that, I find that really interesting like I was like whoa I wasn't expecting colour in a black and white movie and like I, I got a little bit like baffled like how the hell did they do that if it's black <laughs> and white but no it's been hand painted hand literally hand painted wow that's impressive um, yeah I mean, that's what they, that's what they would have done in that that era. I mean, tinting was a thing that was used in prints in order generally to designate uh, times of day, certain emotional feelings. Like that was also used as a way of making the way that we would use music now in a film. Yeah, a lot of the time to make us feel a certain way. Well, the, they the music do it with the print. The music does that too in this as well. Like it, uh, the score ties really well with what's going on. Yeah, and it, and it should do. And no matter which version you watch, whichever score, if you've got a score that's been specially composed for it, it will be trying to pull emo- emotional punches. There was one I came across last night that had a wonderful kind of like 1960s psychedelia soundtrack. And I'm like, I'm I'm bookmarking this. I'm watching this later. This oh. sounds like I might have a really good time. Um, so yes, so I mean, like hopefully this is starting to kind of explain why some of the stuff went on. But but the thing is, like while we talked about this, why you guys didn't really gel with it, there was something about this film that frightened people. Like outsider, even in Russia, this film wasn't well received at the time, and this was banned. I was just going through news reports earlier on, like there's reports in 1925, Gibraltar banning it, India banning it, Britain banned it. Is, you weren't allowed to see this film in Britain. Is that because this could start a an uprising of of the people? <laughs> Communism. Yeah. Basic. Basically. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's. I think this is the thing that's quite hard to to understand. So in, in 1929, I find a newspaper report from the Daily News, where it had actually finally been screened by the um, by the Film Society in London. Mm-hmm. So it had been ban- banned by the local council, banned by the censor, 
but the film society were able to screen it uh, and it, it it's i mean the reviewer is quite scathing in terms of like the stuff that's fictionalized within it um you know he's not massively keen on that he says the film shows the massacre as punishment for the sympathy manifested by the people of Odessa before the beer of the dead ringleader of the mutiny um and then he says so he talks about the 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 woman being shot um i might just read this i'll I'll read the last couple paragraphs of this review Uh, this is by e.a bogan says the horrible instances of a woman being shot when carrying her dead child out of danger and of a perambulator with a baby and it being allowed to run down the flight of steps while the soldiers continue to fire become melodramatic highlights they do not seem true and are evidently in the picture merely to show how inhuman the Tsar's soldiers could be. Frankly, I was disappointed by the film, but I can see no reason why it should not be shown to the public, although I doubt if the public would stomach the gratuitous horror of the massacre on the flight of steps. Um, and then he talks about the music for it. Um, but the other thing that's worth bearing in mind, this is 1929, so the film's already existed for four years in the same newspaper the next article is about kissing between a chinese actress and a western actor a white western actor how that was also censored i mean it's a very very different time but this film was banned until 1954 in the uk at 1954 the film censor decides that at this point you know what silent movie isn't so popular anymore people aren't going to buy into the propaganda because they're not going to get to see it yeah and then they slapped an X certificate on it, which meant that you had to be 18 or over to watch it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and it stayed like that until the 1990s. So what, well, I, I suppose I can, I can get why maybe like at the time the s- scenes in that would have been considered horrific. It's not the horror of the film that's the reason it's cut, that it's banned. But it's just a, because the propaganda aspect of it. Like. Yeah, because the violence within this film is largely within the Odessa steps. Mm-hmm. That's the scenes that are quite unpleasant, and we'll talk about those, I think, in a, in a moment. Um, if that was the stuff that was offensive, yeah. they would have suggested cuts. Yeah. You could have cut the film and screened it. They outright banned this film. Yeah. That regardless of how we feel about this like i've, wa- I've watched in 2022 it. i've watched it and none of it makes me want to revolt against the government against the royal family <laughs> the government you know i don't care <laughs> it's, it's, it's a movie that's um yeah you know it's it's, it's actually making sure you're not on a watch list <laughs> yeah well no i don't care if i'm on a watch list or not <laughs> um so does that does that make more sense? I mean, do, do, like, do we start to get a different sort of appreciation about like the power of this film, even in twenty twenty two? If it doesn't feel powerful, what was actually going on in nineteen twenties? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I still don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, still, I, I understand the message. I understand that people don't like that message getting out there in those times. It still doesn't make me want to ever watch this again or yeah. kind of up my star rating on Letterboxd. I'm afraid. Well, can, can we briefly talk before we wrap up today about the Odessa steps? Because it is like the sequence. I mean, did, did you recognize any of it from other stuff that you've seen? Do I recognize? Have you ever seen a pram being used within a film as a, as a plot point where a baby is being out of control, perhaps? The Omen? Or one of those things, no? Do you know what, what the first one that came to my head? Ghostbusters two. Oh yeah, I was going to make, I was going to do a really flippant answer and go look who's talking to, but it's not that. Ghostbusters two. Yes. But even something even something as simple and as popular as Ghostbusters two, which is nineteen eighty nine, mm. um, where it features a baby, suddenly the 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 pram takes off and the mother's chasing after it, and it's in very real danger of its life. That is a direct citation of Battleship Potemkin. Yeah. Mm. There's a whole sequence apparently in Revenge of the Sith where the um as well where the uh, stormtroopers come in and the difference is they go up they, basically they do the same thing but they go up the steps rather than they going go down. Steps. Okay. And that's it. I would need to watch that 
the, the uh, there's a sequence as well in the Untouchables where a pram is used as, as part of the thing. But the point is, is that I think that we probably have encountered the film without ever encountering the film. Um, the Prince Nez lady, the nurse that, that Neil mentioned earlier on with the glasses, mm. very, very famous photograph uh, image. Um, the Irish painter Francis Bacon used that image a lot in his paintings. I mean, they're some of the most expensive paintings you can buy if you have like tens of millions of pounds. Um, I don't know. It, it, was, it was an image he came back to again and again and again. Uh, somebody suggested to me on Twitter the other week that... Um, was it Raiders of the Lost Ark? The sequence of the Nazis getting the faces burnt off is possibly a citation as well of that that sequence. There's a there's a certain similarity visually to it. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Like this is a film that has a legacy, but how, I mean, like for you, does that sequence work? How does that make you feel? You're both parents. The bit with the child um getting shot and then people just trampling over and then the mother going up yeah i was over like wow that's that's brutal yeah um like it, it's totally senseless mm. um especially whenever the mom's you know mother's carrying and pleading with the soldiers like oh my boy my boy and then they just like see you later bang mm. and then she's dead as well and then like, do these guys not see? This is what really annoys me about this scene. Is like, it comes out of nowhere, and there's no like, there's no justification for anything that's going on. It's just, mm. it's upsetting, but it's also really monotonous because this, as I said before, the same shots, the same. People running down. Let's rewind it a bit. People running down again. Let's focus on somebody else. People running down. A different shot with different bodies. People running down. You know, mm-hmm. it's just the same thing. It's like, yeah, okay, I got it. But like, there's there, the way it ends as well. Is like it just all of a sudden there's a battleship blowing up yeah. a headquarters. Like there's nothing. Like what happens to the other people? You know, it, uh, it's so pointless and so unsatisfying. Like the conclusion at the end of that too. Like, I don't know. It just it just annoyed. It just annoyed me to be honest. Neil seconded. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, exactly. And that. A pod. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't give. Like I was saying before, it's hard to connect to anybody. You mm. don't stay, even mm. even in that step sequence, as horrible as it is, you don't stay with anybody. So it's, mm. it's never like one person's perspective. Everyone you, you could want to follow gets bumped off. Yeah. Like you, you want to follow the initial revolutionary guy, but mm. he gets bumped off. And then... Mm. <laughs> All these other people that take center screen get bumped off, you know. Yeah. Is is it kind of the point though? I mean, that actually, it becomes about again. It becomes about the masses. It's not just about. There's a line about. Um, oh God, it's, it's 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 almost the the dark three musketeers about one for all and all for one. Um, mm. within it, uh, it's, oh God, it's my notes somewhere because I remember writing it down last night. But I think as um, as somebody sitting watching it, you want to, in some ways, I think part of being human is that you want to see somebody make it down the steps. I mean, it's, you know, there are, there are people, there are people who clearly would have and would have gone yeah. in the sound, but not like Ben's end. Like we don't get to go with any of those people. Yeah. <laughs> we don't, there's no, there's no like um, safe place on those steps where people are hunkered down together to, yeah. to cover up or to reach the end of the journey and, and be okay. Everything we see ends in in tragedy then, and bloodshed. Yeah. You know, but that's I, I mean that's obviously the propaganda point was that the, the the so-called upper class, the people who are working for the czar, don't care. They're looking at the the lowest of people in society. You're looking at the women. You're looking at the pensioners. You're looking at the children, and you're looking at a guy with no legs. 
and every single one of them is massacred. The very people that you would normally say, you know, should be given a bit of, a bit of a Bible. And again, you know, I can't help but draw the parallels to what we're hearing about what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, where, you know, women, children, people in schools, people who are not military targets are being targeted and picked off. Yeah. Then, you know, that that is that is part of it. That's part of my aversion to these things is the like I said before, the needless loss of life and the collateral damage that civilians become mm. when the whoever is on either side of a battle um capture everybody else and everything else in the middle of their chaos. Mm. That's not a pleasant experience to to sit and to sit and watch. Um, for me, as I said, be it, be it modern, be it yeah. historical in cinema, I don't, I, I just don't, I can't find any enjoyment in that. I can't. Um, it's made particularly harder when you don't have anybody. When you you know part of part of the chaos of that is there's not. You know, you're not with one character on those steps who, even if they died, you were alongside long enough to root for, care about, mm. attach yourself to, will to the bottom of the steps. It's it's just a lot of small incidents, which mm. shows, which you're right, does show the nature of the beast in that it is indiscriminate. It doesn't care about who, in some ways, it doesn't care who anybody is on those steps. It just wants to get to its purpose um, and making sure that things don't escalate further and there is no further revolution. Mm. Um, but which spoilers there was. Yeah. But I, like, I think, I think as a viewer, speaking yeah. as, speaking as a viewer, I just wanted somebody to kind of to, to be alongside, to root for, to, to do that bit with that the film just doesn't give the give the space for yes it's, it's a fair point it's hard to see how if you were doing a film today you wouldn't have a central character to align yourself with as a viewer whether that's because our films today are constructed differently i don't know mm. um but it would definitely be a harder choice um i just wanted very quickly in passing to to draw attention to the priest um <laughs> Because I can't have films in faith on without chatting about a priest. The wild, and because he is, he fe- he looks to me like he belongs in a completely different film. He looks yes. like he belongs to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You know <laughs> he that looks like Charlton Heston went up the mountain to get the commandments, took a load of cat, <laughs> <laughs> and came down with the crucifix. I right so. I'm assuming he is some form of ship chaplain. Yeah. My initial thought was until until he actually involves himself in kind of the mutiny and the violence, my initial thought was because it's such a jarring move to him at one point, I'm like, is he real? Yep, same. Or is this is this some kind of religious like god figure overseeing all this for a commentary on that? Uh, but it it transpires that he is real. Then I just thought, do they just keep him in the bottom of the ship and nobody ever goes to see him? He's come up through the steps and gone, what's going on here, lads? And then just banged somebody with a crucifix. You know, very, very weird. It's obviously some form of commentary on the church's role Mm. within all of this. But it's, it's quite sporadically done again because you're not even with him long enough to work out like he literally just appears looks like an absolute madman gets involved in a couple of scraps on the boat and then goes away again like just just completely disappears from the film altogether he has that Mm. fall down the stairs and then and then pretends to be dead very cardly thing to do isn't it yeah. To begin that- bashing people with your crucifix and then sort of pretending. Um, I mean, I'm assuming again, it's it's that whole thing. It's about the propaganda element. It's about the statement that Eisenstein is trying to make in terms of a commentary on that. So when you see that, 
he is very stylized. He is, I mean, that could be Ian Paisley with a blood and thunder kind of approach is how I kind of see him coming in. Um, obviously with more hair uh, and a big bushy beard. Um, so he, he, he comes in like that. He is a force. He is a very much of a type. And then he disappears. I mean, I'm not sure. There's probably some kind of Rasputin parallel being drawn there as well. Um, who has obviously had a, a, an influence with the Tsar around about this time, I believe. Okay. And it hadn't occurred to me that that is part of it. And there was a lot of distrust around that uh, and the way that the church was able to manipulate the Tsar. Um, what about the guy in the white suit? They're all in white suits. They were no, sailors. No, <laughs> the, it's, it's on the, the bit where everyone's getting riled up. And they're all yeah. shouting out, you know, oh, together we can, you know, take over, blah, blah, blah. And everyone's getting annoyed. And then you see a couple of like high class hoity toity people. And then there's a guy in a yes. white suit. And what well, does he say oh. something about the Jews? Yeah, he does. He's, he's, yes. He's, he does, actually. He says, uh, smash the Jews. Yeah. He tries to turn the crowd into some kind of like anti Semitic thing. And the, then the whole crowd goes, no, no, and then <laughs> and, they, and they turn on and him, they maul him, <laughs> yeah, presumably to death. I mean, I I don't know. Is that like I, uh, some Nazi thing or no? This is pre-Nazi Germany, um, and uh, so anti-Semitism. Uh, we, I mean, like none of us are Jewish, so would, like we probably should be bringing in a Jewish expert to talk about this stuff. But um, anti-Semitism was not isolated to Nazi Germany, anti-Semitism has always been a thing. Right. Um, as long as there's been Christians, there's been anti-Semitism. Um, and it was rife at this point in time. Ukraine, a lot of people who live in what is now modern-day Ukraine uh, have Jewish ancestry mm-hmm. as well, which I'm sure is part of the reason, that part of what's being played out there, where you have somebody who presumably, again, is meant to represent Sort of the sort of the Moscow-based Russia. Um, Are they not like Orthodox? Like, <laughs> yeah, in 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 sort of Moscow. Yeah, yeah. probably. Yeah. So he's probably that that guy probably is as much to rep- because of his dress sense and because of what he says probably represents that sort of central Russia. Yeah. And the rest of them are kind of in the more the general working class Russians who have a more diverse religious portfolio and a little bit more tolerance. Yeah. Again, I see parallels in terms of what's happening right now. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, this. I mean, this will hopefully last long, long after the the, the Ukrainian situation does. Um, but yes, there. Obviously, I mean, Putin has suggested that you know he's trying to denazify Ukraine. Um, even though it has, a, even though the president is Jewish, yeah, <laughs> of Jewish ancestry, and that's not the, at all. Um, but interestingly, as I alluded to in the in the opening, um, Goebbels, who was you know Nazi Germany's propaganda minister, propaganda minister, did watch these films and did see the power of the montage and did see the power of the politics that's being portrayed within these films. Not so much necessarily the message of communism is what he he, he was riled up by. And I, I, clearly he overlooked the bit where people turned on the people who complained about the Jews, but he saw the ability within the film to send a message. Yeah. And he was really interested in that. And Eisenstein actually had to go out of his way to kind of write and basically dismiss any suggestion that his film should be used in that way. Yeah. Um, but that was something that the the Nazi Germany was aware of. I mean, the, the, this is, again is about storytelling. It's about delivering a message. And we still see some of the techniques being used in terms of the media and in terms of advertising today, even though we don't necessarily realize that's what's going on. Mm. I mean, adverts are actually a really good place to talk about montage because that's all about, you know, you got 60 seconds, you got to sell a product. You got to get as much information as short a time as you possibly can. So it's all those quick juxtapositions of images that are often quite disparate that actually together suddenly you, you know, if you sit down and you start dissecting, you realize that they have delivered you something that you didn't even realize. And suddenly now you want a bowl of, of, of Weetabix. That's why they put the popcorn and, and drinks things on, like before the film starts to get you to nip out, buy your snacks and then come back in to watch the film you paid to see if you haven't bought your snacks on the way in. 
Uh, you always buy your snacks in the way. <laughs> <laughs> but they do, that's what they put that on for to catch the people who don't. Mm. Who look at that? Who look at the popcorn on screen or the coke going into the cup and go, "Oh, I'd love a flipping drink. Why did I not get one?" And then you see, I've I've seen it work. We've all, mm-hmm. seen, we've all seen that ad come on. Then people come go out and come back with arms full of stuff. Like, <laughs> I I mean, we we are very suggestible as a people. And the thing is, is that in the nineteen twenties, they were working out how to use this technology and how to use this as an art form. Yeah. To manipulate, um, to manipulate people. Yeah, that's why algorithms are now the most powerful thing we have in terms of social media and stuff because they control what we see and suggest to us things we'd like to buy and all that type of stuff. You know, it goes. Yeah, that's how that's how it goes. So, uh, in summary, you don't like the film. No. <laughs> <laughs> In summary, there's a reason Rachel Kelly is not here tonight, (laughs) and that reason is she was right. (laughs) Oh my gosh, don't tell her that. I'll never hear the end of it. She doesn't, she's not going to listen to this, so Rachel, Rachel, you were right, and I I wholeheartedly say congratulations (laughs) on not being here when we go through this. Well, I mean, both of you, thank you very much for, for indulging my whims and uh, goodness knows what we'll, we'll bring to you next. Um, I hopefully I haven't put you off yet. Folks at home, if you enjoy the show, um, do make sure you tell your friends about us. Do hit that subscribe button if you're not already subscribed to the Cinepunk podcast on whatever platform that you happen to be listening to us through. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube's everywhere these days and check out our website www.cinepunk.com. I've been Robert J. Simpson. I've been joined tonight by Neil Sedgwick. Thank you very much. And Ben, Blade Man Simpson. Mm, goodbye. And we'll catch you again very, very soon.